Okay, who wants to do the right. intro? Tom, sorry, you wrote it. <laughs> yeah, 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 it's fine. Fire to it. Hello everyone, welcome to the OSINT Bunker podcast in collaboration with the United Kingdom Defence Journal. Joining me is Jordan from Intel Air and Sea, John from Defence Geek and OSINT Technical, um, myself, Tom uh, from Sierra Alpha. This is the first podcast in what would, well, what could become a series should the response, well, should people actually like what they're listening to. Uh, so we'll see, but uh, as you may have seen from our tweets, in quite a few of them, we've been both quite excited about what could be come of this. Uh, we've got three topics lined up for discussion in this episode with a brief summary of this week's events from John following and in the end, um, in which we have not covered this episode. I mean, we decided really not to, am I right in saying, not to really concentrate on the Middle East this one because I think mm. there is a, an attitude that the world of geopolitics doesn't revolve entirely around the Middle East. There is room for discussion outside the Middle East. So I think that's the moral of our thinking behind this one. So, uh, well, I guess stop dithering. In, uh, in, first in... of all, topics is the ongoing crisis in Texas. So, uh, oh, yeah. Technical. In fairness, I'll I'll just have to interject on our our plan to not talk about the Middle East sort of fell apart about 45 minutes ago when we saw that um, the U.S. had started to move anti-aircraft systems into uh, northern Syria. Oh wait, yeah, so completely. so, yeah, so our entire our, our entire plan not to talk about the Middle East in this episode really just fell apart very quickly. Yeah, it did. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. So so from what we can see, um, tweet will be linked um down below. Um, as the first one, um, it seems like, uh, the U.S. at least uh, is flatbedding in M197, um, Avenger, uh, short-range, um, air defense systems. It's basically just Stinger missiles on a Humvee, um, which is interesting because it's, it's more for targeting low-flying jets and, um, uh, basically helicopters and stuff like that. Um, I'm not sure if they have, uh, drone defense packages. I know they were looking at, um, attaching them to the Avenger system. Um, so it may also be for drone interdiction, um, but on top of that, it just it it gives you sort of idea that the U.S. is going to be sticking around in northern Syria and intends to be a bit harder to pick out. Um, one interesting thing about this is it sort of um, shows the U.S.'s current um, strategy when it comes to uh, sort of air defense in general. Uh, really, the U.S. Army doesn't have its own self-contained, really high-level air defense systems. Um, we sort of rely on the Air Force um, for most of our air defense work. Um, unlike... I think that's kind of common all across NATO, really. If you look in comparison to pretty much every NATO country, the only sort of proper, like, big-scale air defense system that exists amongst them is really the Patriot or FAD from the U.S. Every, all the other NATO countries are entirely dependent on yeah. their air force to and and do the ages the, the, the ages ashore is sort of trying to move in the direction of of a more area based um system based on land um but it's definitely different than um former you know warsaw pact nations that have that sort of integrated down to the like unit level um you yeah. know ground-based air defense with uh, of course the tunguska system um, which is very threatening for anything trying to come into a to an area um, but it's definitely different with the U.S., and I think it's more responsive of what the U.S. has had to deal with 
over you know the past 30 years ever since uh, the first gulf war it's it's dealt with complete air superiority so you know of course you sometimes have to deal with helicopters stingers deal easily with them i think this is the first time if i'm you might correct me that we've actually seen evidence or photos of u.s air defense operating in syria I I I, I that... believe it is, um, which is sort of why this is this is somewhat notable, uh, just just the fact that we we're seeing this as as a new development in the region. And I honestly, if if I'm to you know go out on a limb and make some guesses, I would assume it has something to do with potential threats from Assad, um, just at least in the area of you know. Uh, Assad's current air power is really limited to helicopters right now. Um, most of the fixed-wing assets are provided by the Russians, so uh, I think there's there's a potential they may be trying to protect from some sort of shenanigans in that area. And it would be fair to say that the American presence in, in northern Syria has been mostly expeditionary, mostly small units, fairly mobile, moving around. Whereas obviously bringing in stingers now suggests that maybe with the withdrawal from Iraq, maybe they're moving stuff across the border into Syria. Well, the bring in the bring in Bradley's not that long ago. Mm, yeah, yeah, exactly. Right, right before the pullout, um, la no last year, yes, no two years ago, holy cow, or year and a half ago, um, right before you know the whole Turkish interdiction in northern Syria, we saw most U.S. operations were out of a few large bases in northern Syria, mostly special operations, um, uh, patrols, uh, you know, mostly MRAPs and, and you know, your standard Oshkosh light utility style um, vehicles. And then after the pullout, after we came back in, you saw more um, distributed heavier based um you know more in kind to what we're seeing the russians doing in northern syria um that that heavy armor or not heavy armor but but more infantry based armor mm. i think there might be something in that as well that tells us that the united states has received actionable intelligence about something i mean i'm not i mean that's me putting my tinfoil hat on but there's there's a good chance that they are moving yeah, and and intelligence about something or impending attack or or etc. etc. Yeah, and and a lot of the stuff we're seeing right now is also probably has a lot to do with the new administration because we're still, I mean, we're a month into the new administration, you know, thirty one days at this point, and um, we're we're starting to see you know tangible differences in a lot of those subject areas we're going to talk about today, um, and that's that, and we sort of have to draw out, you know. What is, you know, a change in position due to, you know, some sort of evolution in the situation on the ground versus, you know, a change in situation due to, you know, new people we're seeing at the State Department and in the White House. And that that's a yeah, that's a big yeah. thing to big thing to try to cut through. Um and is and, and it's gonna know, be I mean, hard. Yeah, completely agree. I mean, you know, I mean, we're not gonna touch on it today, but I think Yemen is a great is a great example of as of what we've seen. You know, President Biden removing the um, yeah. levels off the uh, terrorist uh, designation list, which I think everyone who follows me on Twitter will know that is a yeah. I'm not even going to go into my feelings on that because it's, it's, it's definitely a major policy up, shift. Yeah. Exactly, it, it's it shows us that they are prepared to make significant policy changes on the on the dime. 
So, you know, I think I think Paul is right by saying that in light of a new administration that we're likely to see more depending on countries and geopolitics. It's not going to be a question of moving out, it's a question of moving in. Yeah, and, and, and at the end of the day, it all comes down to that. Um, so moving on to the next topic, of course, we're going to stay US-centric because I've hijacked this podcast now as the American, haha. <laughs> um, but Texas. Uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> um, <laughs> God's sake. Texas and the vulnerabilities yes, yeah. in the U.S. power grid and how it can affect the U.K. too. All right, guys, I'll make you feel better here. Your, your, you, you, you also, your, your power grid can also collapse as well. Don't, don't, don't act all high and mighty on me here. Um, but uh, for anyone who's confused about what or what happened and why, um, last week, uh, Texas, um, had a fairly, um unusual cold snap um it was a few days in a row of below 32 degree fahrenheit zero degree celsius um weather um along with some snow ice you know generally wintry weather uh texas homes are set up with a different form of heating called heat pumps which is basically a reverse air conditioning so instead of blowing hot air outside and you know or hot air outside cold air inside you're blowing cold air outside hot air inside um, and then the rest is done by electric resistance heating, which hugely inefficient, but it's Texas, it's normally warm, or not this cold. Um, and then additionally, Texas, in order to avoid federal U.S. federal regulations, um, set up their own power grid. Uh, so that would be, you know, there's the, basically in the North America, there's the East Coast, Eastern U.S. power grid. And then there's the western half of the country has a power grid along with Canada, and then Quebec is do- off doing their own thing, sort of like Texas. Um, but Texas having their own grid um, means they have you know state level control over all their um, power generation. They um, have not been winterizing their power plants, which means not doing the necessary preparations to you know guard against prolonged sub-zero you know freezing temperatures. So what that did was when this cold snap came, a bunch of power generation went offline. Wind power, um, solar power, and a lot of gas power, and also I believe a nuclear plant um, also went offline due to some freezing issues. Um, So with that, sort of as this all sort of came together, um, utilities realized that they were going to have to shut off power. And at least according to um, some sources... Uh, link down in the description. Um, uh, Texas was apparently uh, minutes away from a complete failure in the grid, um, where um, basically when you don't purposely turn people off and you start getting grid failure, um, you have large amounts of equipment that gets damaged, which can take months and months to fix. Um, So uh, I uh, I know you guys can probably speak to this issue a bit more, but the UK has at least similar issues with gas um generation and coal-fired plants um not not to the same level as texas but go ahead well to a certain extent the uk is mostly moving on phasing out coal power plants altogether but that at everywhere it must have been a few winters ago now when we had a shipment of it was a particularly cold winter and we had to rely on a gas ship several uh, lng tank well, some sort of tank that's coming in from the Middle East. Yeah, We're so... dependent on them coming in. That must have been, what, I'm talking like six, seven years ago, 
possibly. Yeah, um, and I think... And, and there... even more recently than that, I, I seem to recall we had... Um, there was one winter in particular where uh, just the, the amount of uh, power production was just not at the standard it needed to be, and there was power outages in several parts of the UK for uh, several weeks. Um, it made frontline news across the country, but yeah, and that's that's just that gets back to yeah. the the failure in generation, which can, I mean, the grid is on a fine line all the time because if if you're not generating power, you're not making money, and if you're not like making money, you don't want to be wasting money on a plant. So plants that aren't generating power actively are usually you know shut down or in cold storage or in some phase of hibernation, um, which makes sudden spikes in demand or drops in generation really really dangerous because when you know properties of electricity when you generate electricity it is immediately used by the consumer so you have to be finely balancing your grid at all times and you know any failure in that can result in in some pretty extreme results as we saw in texas yeah i mean you can speak for yourself i mean when it comes to the us i mean here i think we know about local power out power failures because we don't have infrastructure, power infrastructure on the same scale as you do. And that shows, I mean, we have power cuts for 20 minutes, comes back on happy days. But I think in Texas, it's a really something we've not seen much of, especially in somewhere eight where actually it took, took the government by such surprise that it, it more or less crippled the state. It's it's still ongoing, as, as you know. It's crippled the United States' biggest state in such a way where it can barely function, and that's quite alarming, I would say. Yeah. Um. And and to to stay to sort of stay out of the political waters of this, of course, decision makers did you know sort of go create... to Cancun. Yeah, and that that too. But but they they definitely created the situation where you know, spending a bit more on actually, you know, setting up the grid for winter conditions, because it does occasionally happen in Texas, um, and, and actually preparing the grid for more events like this may become at least more politically acceptable in the future, um, whether that, that ends up becoming more publicized. Yeah, definitely. I think the, the idea that not many people consider uh, power-related infrastructure when it comes to certain, you know, geopolitical climate issues, and it's it's something that's really, quite really overlooked. Mm. Um, it's it's, it's something it's something we've seen quite keenly in Venezuela last year, um, with yes, obviously yeah, the, yeah. the Maduro regime um, and the, the power outages there, um, often deliberately on on the part of the government. Um, but obviously, with that comes internet outages, and so news about what's going on often doesn't get out of countries like that when things like that go on. And we're seeing it again in Myanmar now. Um, you know, the, the military coup there and the government's uh, been swept aside and the military's taken over and they've, they've reduced power to a lot of places in order to prevent news about what's going on from getting out to the rest of the world. Yeah, and that's, I mean, that's one yeah. of the main reasons why we haven't reported on it as much is because there isn't the content. There are there just isn't the news getting out of the country and we're seeing, you know, bits and pieces trickle out where people can actually get information out. But but other than that, the military has been fairly effective in blocking out information. I mean, we've been relying on 
at some point satellite imagery to get photos of protests. I mean, that's it's it's sort of unprecedented. Yeah, with yeah, of course, and we're, we're nearing a point where we can consider Myanmar as more or less a satellite state, both both in a, a naming convention where in a literal in a literal way, or as you say, we're now getting photos literally by satellite. That is the only way in which we can now visual confirmation of certain issues. Yes, and and of course, you know, um, obviously Myanmar falling into um, into the Chinese sphere of influence happened happened fairly quickly. Um, to to be honest, um, probably over the last you know twenty years, it really went from being um, sort of China adjacent to re- to just a satellite state, basically, as you said. Yeah, and yeah, it's quite effective the way the Chinese have been able to actually embed themselves in, in the very framework of, of Myanmar's I mean as we saw two was it I believe two weeks prior to the coup um generals met with senior Chinese Oh no the the officials. Chinese the Chinese foreign minister visited basically... He visited two mu- two weeks before the coup. Visited. Yes, visited. And mm, wow. you know that was I mean, you know, I I had sent some tweets out about that, but it was it was pretty clear what was I mean afterwards, you know, who this coup was backed by, who supported it, you know, where this was coming from. I mean, it was it was it was pretty clear that it was it was completely Chinese supported, um, which I think is partially why other countries haven't gotten involved as we thought they would have, um, both from the outright support of China and potentially um, more. Uh, quiet support um, in the form of um, practical assistance, um, and and I, I I can't get into more without going into super speculative territory um, that would that would probably be irresponsible to to talk about. Um, but it definitely uh, the the military government in, in Myanmar has the the support of the Chinese government right now. Definitely, and when when we you know talk about um, been just now power infrastructure and alongside issue in Myanmar there is questions and points to be made over morale the public you shut off power, no electricity no social media, vision uh, no radio access etc etc and that eventually will take a toll on the public and thus the public opinion of those who are, are doing such things and as we can see with the growing protests in Myanmar that is having that undesired effect yeah i mean at the same time with that when you cut off the public talking to each other it does you know limit the ability of the public to protest and at the same time it it gives the chinese or the um the military government there the ability to crack down much harder than we would otherwise see in other countries um and and we just we just don't know how much they're cracking down um we know they've shot at protesters um, we, we know they're using weapons against protesters. We, we don't know much else. No, I think it, it's been, I think, words in which we can, fortunately, that has been quite effective in the way that they've gone about it. It's been, been almost text in the way in which the military is powerful. Yes, and and you just you you have to wonder where they where they possibly could have gotten the assistance to to form mm, some sort of yeah, some let, sort let of wall some yeah. sort of wall around the internet. Say say 
a great wall, maybe, around around their internet. Yeah, exactly. So, um, moving on, I know you guys wanted to talk about a, a certain uh, surface warfare group. Um, <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> and you, right, you've been, this, you've this been bothering like me all yep. damn week about this thing, so I'll, I'll let you guys so go true. ahead. Alright, so, moving on from from power infrastructure, the crisis in Texas and mine, Mark, we uh, we thought it would be it would be fitting to discuss the United Kingdom's coming uh, carrier strike group twenty one, and which will be sailing to the South China Sea later this year. Um, well, it's it's quite exciting, isn't it, lad? To be honest, it is uh, indeed. Being out of the game for being out of the game for so long in the carrier strike game, and now we're back bigger than before. And it's been what? I know, I know, I know since twenty ten is you know, yeah, exactly. It's quite exciting for us. I know he's sat back in 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 America right now. He's like, yeah, we've got God knows how many carriers at sea, <laughs> yeah, given one. So you know, he he's like, I don't know what these guys are getting excited about, but for us, yeah, it's, it's, it's quite it, something. It's to be back in the game. To once again, have that carrier strike capability. Um, obviously, with the retirement of uh, HMS Ark Royal and the, and the Harriers. Right back in in 2010, after the defence review, um, it has been a long time, and it, it it's it, it still amazes me really that we've gone so long without that carrier strike capability. Um, particularly when you consider that just months after uh, the, the the Harriers and the and the uh, HMS Art Royal were retired, uh, we were obviously out in Libya um, working with the UN uh, dealing with uh, Colonel Gaddafi. Um, and then obviously since then, we've had Op Shader in uh, Syria and Iraq dealing with uh, terrorist group ISIL um, and, and just everything else as well that we've been dealing with, you know, uh, hurricanes in the Caribbean and so on. Um, so, yeah, it's it's good to be back in the game, uh, as the Royal Navy keeps calling it. I was going to say, I'll say in yeah. terms of an interesting topic I think to talk about is um, the, the escorts for the vessel. Obviously, we know from the Royal Navy aspect, it's going to be two Type 45s and two Type 23s. But mm-hmm. in terms of the multinational effort, we know the US have announced an Arleigh Burke's going to be sent. I cannot remember the name of which one. One of them. I, yeah. we, one have, of, we, what, have a, we have a lot. Wasn't it <laughs> one of the many of... <laughs> I'm, I'm under the impression that it will, initially when the deployment begins, it will be one of the uh, one of the DDGs stationed out of Rota in Spain. Because um, obviously the US has four uh, the destroyers uh, based there as a forward deployment, and then Absolutely. at some point after the the, the stint in the Mediterranean, um, it'll swap over to one of the ships deployed in in, in sort of Indo Pacific. Yeah, um, one probably, I would assume if they're operating in the South China Sea, probably um, one out of Sasebo in Japan. Um, <clears throat> that that would be probably expected, and they may link up. Um, Oh, well, correction, I would expect them to link up with other U.S. assets um, in the South China Sea um, and mm. potentially go through some multinational exercises. I was yeah. going to say, we yeah, certainly, that, think that, we certainly seem to think the Dutch are going to be involved, certainly for at least the first leg of the journey toward, to, towards Suez. Yeah, and we, uh, we, we do now know that the Navy is planning to uh, make a visit at some point either to Greece or at the very least to Cyprus. Uh, um, Greece is Greece has seemingly so, been confirmed. Is it'll be soon? Yeah. It looks to be yeah, soon. Yeah, the Greek, soon the Greek government confirmed it this week. So we're, we're, I, I, I would expect to see um, Italian, French, and maybe Greek assets 
uh, joining at various points during uh, the trip through the Mediterranean. Um, and then obviously beyond that, once once we actually get out past the Suez and, and, and into the Persian Gulf and beyond, um, Australia has indicated, Japan has also indicated their intent to uh, join the task group at some point. Um, I think most, most by this point, most of the out. G20s. Hmm. Obviously, ships will be stopping in and out as as the as the carrier strike group moves around the world. But um, it's fairly safe to say she's not going to be lacking escorts. Um, and obviously, we, we we also know that there will be a submarine, um, at least one, sailing with the group. Um, at the moment, it's believed to be uh, planned that one of the astute class in the Royal Navy will be sailing with the, with the carrier strike group. Um, but given the sheer number of American subs out there, I wouldn't be surprised if. At some point, we find out there's an American sub with them, and maybe even an Australian one. Oh, I, I, I would anticipate the U.S. Um, at least attempts to throw a couple of Los Angeles classes at the formation. Um, at least for, for training, um, purposes at at minimum. Yeah. Also, as, as well, though, I, I think, think one of the more interesting points is the fact that um, the Type Twenty Threes are seemingly are going to be armed with a wildcat instead of a Merlin. Yeah, and, and, and we had a, had a quick discussion about this earlier, because obviously, um, generally speaking, the Type 23 frigate is intended as an anti-submarine warfare vessel. It's fitted with all of the necessary sonar equipment and submarine torpedoes. Um, and the Merlin is very much the, the Royal Navy's primary anti-submarine aircraft, um, at least at the moment, until the P-8 uh, side properly uh, comes online um so the use the, yeah the use of the wildcat is an interesting pick uh for the type 23 um it, it might be because there's going to be loads of merlins on board the carrier itself um and obviously the, the wildcat has recently undergone fitting out with these uh with these new martlet missiles um for anti-ship uh, warfare particularly for dealing with fast attack boats which is obviously going to be a major concern uh, when the carrier strike group gets into the Persian Gulf. Well, that's even going to be a concern if you're heading if you're heading through the Suez Canal because this, I know the Marlets can finally do can mainly do um, naval units, but it can be inflicted on it can be sent to attack ground units as well. And going through the Suez Canal is still probably one of the most risky points on the journey. Mm. Yeah, and and also of course once you're sailing near Yemen. Um, that becomes risky in a lot of uh, in a lot of different ways, especially with the number of groups that are associated with the Houthis. And and well, also... I mean, we've already seen we've already seen that capability to knock out ships yeah, and knock out Saudi ships say. in the past. Yeah, I mean, they, we we came close. To, I mean, the Saudi Navy came close to losing, and I mean, actually losing a frigate at the bottom of the bottom of the ocean because of, I believe it was a, a suicide boat. Something like that. there was a radio control. I don't know what the acronym is, but it was a boat packed full of explosives, was rammed into the side of a, a frigate, and listed to the extent in which they nearly had to abandon ship. So it, it's no joke. It's it's no it's no photo opportunity the way they they're going. It's it's to prove that operational operationally it's capable, and no threat is. No threat will be able to pose penetrate the defenses. I'm trying to find the right words. Yeah, yeah it, it's, it's 
what we've got to remember, of course, is that Type 45 and Type 23s, they are high-end assets, and particularly with the air defence side of things, because obviously the Houthis have been quite uh, renowned recently for their air attacks with drones. Um, Saudi Arabia has, has had to deal with so much of that. Um, but obviously, these are high-end assets, and they are largely equipped with very large, very expensive missiles designed for taking out high-value targets. And so obviously the martlets are going to be so important for dealing with these low-cost boats and low-end you know, low uh, unmanned, unmanned vehicles that are such a risk now uh, in modern warfare compared with, say, 40, 50 years ago. Yeah, and it's, it's, it's another reason why the U.S. has been so heavy, at least on implementing laser defense systems on our ships. Um, or at least actively testing and going down that route is just because dealing with that, you know, those cheap drone attacks and, you know, small boats is it's 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 really, really hard to waste a multi-million dollar missile against, you know, a $50, you know, or not 50, but of course, like $500 pile of, you know, foam and cardboard yeah. and a few electronics and some explosives. And it just, it gets down to that question of, you know, what does the UK have right now on, you know, on the Type 45s and the Type 23s to actually deal with, you know, small drones? I mean, do they have um, drone it's, interdiction systems currently It's literally just the uh, the Phalanx uh, Seawiz, um, one on each side of, of the Type 45s, and then a similar outfit on the Type 23s. And that's, that, that's all well and good, and don't get me wrong, we obviously have seen over Iraq the, the Sea Ram, which is based on the same uh, defense system. We've obviously seen how useful that has been uh, for the most part in intercepting rockets and stuff that are coming in. But obviously it, it has a limited range. Um, and although SeaWiz can be used against surface targets, it's probably not something that the Navy will be overly keen on using in the crowded waters of the Persian Gulf. Because even with a three and a half kilometer maximum range on the gun, you don't want to, you know, by the time that they've positively identified what is coming towards them and whether or not it's a threat, you you know, they're already close enough that there is a risk to the ships, there's a risk to the, the strike group itself. Yeah, and, and swarm attacks as well um, may be a mm. potential issue, um, especially once you start coupling that um, with not just drones, you know, attacks with the sort of the swarming philosophy, but also utilizing multiple attack methods, you know, anti-ship missiles and... Um, fast boats. That's... You can you can you can run into a lot of issues where you can start saturating defenses. Yeah, and we've obviously seen there was a, a, an astonishing uh, satellite image from uh, it was November last year of uh, one of the U.S. carriers passing through the Persian Gulf, and the satellite image just showing behind the ship just a swarm of Iranian boats of various kinds, and we are literally talking hundreds of these little boats just following the carrier at a distance. And that is that is obviously something that, that concerns the US. It concerns the UK as well. Um, I'm sure the French have had concerns about it when they've passed through uh, in recent times. But it, yeah, it, it, it's, it's definitely, a, at the moment, the technology is somewhat lagging behind the threat in that regard. Laser weapons will do a lot to try and fix that problem. Um, obviously, you know, most of these boats will be sailing with extra machine guns mounted on the railings. Um, but it will, it will be interesting to see, particularly with Iran, um, how they play out their 
response to the UK carrier strike group coming through. And it will also be interesting to see what happens when the uh, carrier strike group travels through the South China Sea itself. Mm. And we're, we're concentrating on the areas which it will pass through to get to its destination. There is the one question that needs asking is what will happen when the Chinese are faced with a a multi multi multinational task force and such a size and capability right in their back garden. I'll Mm. offer my take on it, which I don't think it'll go through the Taiwan Strait, which is obviously that's gonna that would cause a whole host of a whole host of issues. But however, we've seen the US carrier that's deployed in the re- in the South China Sea at the minute near the Philippines, when the Chinese aircraft have been coming to um to do when the when the en- when they enter Taiwan's air defence zone, if you look at the maps published where the aircraft have been tracked to, they've gone directly over where the ca- in and around the areas where the carrier is. Yeah, and so I think you'll get you'll get probably the visit by Chinese aircraft, probably as you would if you sailed a carrier next to Russia. But I think you'll just a lot of it'll be a lot of just diplomatic shouting from them. Yeah, a lot of the issues right now are, of course, the Chinese realizing that they can get away with a lot. Um, well, and 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 at the end of the day, sailing ships through the South China Sea doesn't really do that much. Um, as long as the Chinese can continue building air bases in the region and um continuing to exert their influence over over smaller nations in you know the indian ocean and the pacific which and and they know that they know that you know at the end of the day a couple of carrier strike groups you know sailing through the south china sea isn't an issue for them because it distracts from the larger problem yeah completely agree and i think as jordan said it's it's more diplomatic we're back post-Brexit even. To the extent you could say post-Brexit, personally, I think it has a lot to do with that, considering the destinations where it's stopping and you know I... where it's being showcased. Yeah, it, 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 to an extent, it's, it's kind of more a reassurance to our, you know, our fellow Commonwealth. Yeah, countries. exactly. Um, obviously, you know, the, the key port visits um, once we hit Indo-Pacific are going to be sort of Australia, um, looking at potentially passing South Korea, going past Japan. Um, I think possibly Singapore as well with the yeah, with the yeah, naval base yeah. that's already we've got there. Yeah. Well, the support unit, technically. Yeah. Um, we may even see a, a brief um, visit past Hong Kong. Um, obviously, the situation over there is, is still fairly fluid from all the protests last year and, and China's new national security law that they've enforced in there. Um, and obviously the British government has continued to express its dissatisfaction with the way that China's behaving there. So I, I would expect a show of force at the very least with the carrier maybe sailing past Hong Kong, um, even if it's just for a photo shoot or something, just to say to China, look, we are here, we're back, and you need to pay attention to what we're saying because we're not happy and we are prepared to do something about it. I think, look, we've seen the rhetoric yeah. that China's shouted about just in the announce in the announcements of the groups going ahead into that region. And I think when the group does head in the region, they'll they'll up they'll up like what they what they say diplomatically, but it's for actually doing anything. They just I just don't see them doing anything of just it's just more it's more of just a safe face really yeah. for them. 
and it, it's not that they're not capable of doing anything. That, that 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 is something we need to stress very very clearly. China's military capabilities have come on leaps and bounds. In the well, they've probably time. got one of the best anti-ship ca- missile capabilities, like certainly like land-based yeah. ASMs out there. Yeah, a hundred percent. The 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 cruise missiles and now even anti-ship ballistic missiles are a huge concern, and it's it, it's something that the Americans have been very very keenly aware of and it, it's part it's been part of a major distu- uh, discussion over there uh, which we won't go into in detail today um regarding the future of aircraft carriers in general because obviously with the the anti-ship capabilities that china has and the sheer number of missiles they can fire the chances of a, a u.s carrier being sunk in a conflict is just so high now that um, there are groups in the states that are lobbying to say shrink the size of the carriers or even don't have carriers anymore um i mean obviously you know we've, we've got there's four ships of the gerald r ford class up on order now uh, one of them's already completed two more are under construction they've announced the name before um but there is talk at the moment that that may well prove to be it for the class um obviously the limits class at the minute there's 10 ships plan was that Fords would replace like for like 10 ships, um, maybe even an 11th just to cover the retirement of the Enterprise back in 2011. Um, but at the moment, there's very little movement. And again, with the new administration uh, in the States in the minute, it's going to be interesting to see whether or not they're prepared to invest money into new carriers. Um, and potentially, if they don't, it's going to make Britain's carriers all the more important for nato's presence around the world yeah and and one of the yeah, one of the exactly. second this... and also go ahead yep uh yeah so i was just gonna say about um how certain i mean you mentioned the u.s and the u.s the groups involved in one drink or altogether carriers it's it's a matter of do or does a certain body or administration value diplomacy trade to do with you know um, hard power soft power whatever you want to call it um, traveling around the world in an aircraft carrier as cliche as that may sound do they value that more or do they value a long-standing presence in which unfortunately there is a growing threat towards that carrier it's that it's finding that balance between diplomacy trade yeah. and and eventually putting thousands of lives at risk due to evolving technologies and anti-ship warfare and uh, a missile capability. And this this debate did happen towards the tail end of the Cold War um, between the U.S. and Russia um, when it came to the question of, you know, Russian anti-ship missile capabilities were, were really starting to come into their stride in the 80s. Um, and, you know, we we had this sort of debate of whether or not to, you know, sort of reframe our our naval forces into, you know, a different form that could properly counter, um, you know, the advanced Russian anti-ship missile capability. And really the side that was talking about um, being more aggressive with aircraft carriers won. And we're seeing that same debate now. Of course, um, our aircraft carrier doctrine is a bit more um, established at this point. Um, so we're we're seeing that um, we're seeing it go sort of in that direction still, um, but that's definitely going to become a debate um, in the next twenty years probably. Um, in addition, uh, it it we're 
trying to fight both the U.S. and um, uh, Great Britain are trying to fight two wars at the same time, trying to fight, you know, brown waters against small ships and the traditional blue water against a major peer opponent, um, which, which becomes something to try to manage uh, and, and definitely trying to manage that is a difficult thing. Yeah, and I mean, a primary yeah. example of how difficult that has become is the, the, the littoral combat ship program in the US, um, which was supposed to have been sort of a replacement for frigates, um, primarily aimed at doing the, you know, the, the near shore side of missions. Um, but obviously now, you know, that, that that's kind of fallen through. The US has recognized it. It still needs traditional frigates. Yeah, that, um, that, that program is dead. Yeah, we've obviously seen the Constellation class now coming online, and although the littoral combat ships have actually ended up doing, you know, blue water deployments, we've seen uh, one of them uh, recently, I believe it was Connecticut, um, actually sailed all the way out across the Pacific um, on its own. Although they have that capability, it, like you say, it, the, the project in that regard is well and truly dead, and I think that is something else that the Americans are, ha- are going to have to consider as well. And it, it's a lesson for, for the UK. Um, obviously, we've now got the, the Type 31. And as of very late uh, last year, early this year, the announcement about the Type 32 frigate program uh, coming on, it will be a lesson for the UK to make sure that we don't make that mistake, that we make sure these are genuine frigates and not a sort of, you know, littoral combat capability focused uh, ship. Yes, we need a variety of weapons, as, as we've already discussed, to deal with the low-end technologies that are proving to be so dangerous uh, in warfare now, stuff like the drones um, and these uh, rockets and stuff. But we also need to make sure that we don't lose the high-end capability for warfighting when we're dealing with people like Iran and China, and, and obviously there is still the threat from North Korea and other places. Yeah, and and a lot of the it is that the fighting the two wars at once, you know, fighting against those peer opponents, and then fighting against you know less not as peer but still very dangerous opponents like Iran, um, where they have the ability, yes, to deploy a large number of anti ship missiles, which can cause a lot of issues for just any ship operating in the area, and. I mean, obviously, the littoral combat ship program um, had some glaring flaws. On paper, it seemed like a great idea. And, of course, that's why the military decided to go through it. Um, but it, it, it ended up being sort of... Um, it, it was too early um, for the technology trying to be implemented on the platform. Um, where they were trying to implement stealth, you know, laser systems, modularity... Um, and then, you know, that, that high power output um, engine package. And it, it just all sort of came together to be a, a massive mess um, where they basically tried to test a bunch of systems all <laughs> on a new platform. And it just, you, you'd never do that. You, you just, you never do that and it doesn't work. Yeah. And, and, and it's, it's, they've had kind of a lot of the same problems with uh, the Ford class carriers, obviously with the, with the new uh, emails uh, launch system. Um, and all the various radars and other sensors that they've incorporated on it. And you can see where they've learned from that with the Constellation class frigates, where they've literally gone and taken an off-the-shelf hull design from uh, an allied country and then just mounted known, tried and tested equipment, weapons and sensors to it. Yeah, and and 
you know, we we spent a very large amount of money to learn that lesson. Um mm-hmm. and going forward, I think we'll we'll, you know, we'll we'll take that lesson in stride and definitely use um proven systems in addition to new systems and try not to create an entire new platform with entire new systems all at once cuz that just ends up blowing a bunch of money. At the end of the day, that's it. But yeah, obviously, the as as we're bringing this topic towards a close, um, the the British carrier strike group deployment this year will be a, a real test, not only for the UK but also really for America, um, because they will get to see how uh, China and, and and Iran and other countries are responding to the return of British carriers, and and it may well help influence their decision with regards to the future of the board class. Um, and, and their carrier ethos in general. Um, obviously, they've recently started deploying the amphibious assault ships uh, like the USS Wasp and the USS America uh, with F-35s on board um, as sort of light aircraft carriers rather than the traditional amphibious assault role. That yeah, that, that sea control sort of setup. Um... Yeah, which which is a concept they've, they've been looking at really for more than 30 years now. Um, but... Yeah, it, it will be a, a huge test for that, and it could very well shape the future of carrier deployments and the future of the aircraft carrier across the world um, quite significantly, because obviously, at the minute, it's Britain, France, Russia, China, and the US who have sort of fully operational, fully functional carriers, um, and Russia sort of, sort of to a lesser extent, obviously, with the accidents that they've had recently and the fact that they can't commit at the moment financially to a new carrier so it, it, i'm sure there will be a, a keen watch as well from russia uh, to see how the, the deployment goes and make a decision from that as to whether they're going to invest in new carriers or whether they're going to look at other capabilities yeah and then you know going back to that debate between large yeah. single you know massive aircraft carrier platforms you know five thousand plus crew and something closer to the america class where you see this this smaller um mm. ship fat not faster but um definitely able to operate in different conditions with a lower escort um you know capacity um but still still able to project a large amount of power um mm. with of course the f-35 um and you, you you see that um sort of as the counterpoint and and sort of as um people have started to make that argument for smaller carriers but speaking about yeah. near peer opponents that are, or less than peer opponents that are still dangerous, um, getting into the the, the final topic um, for today, uh, South America, um, yeah. and and the activity yeah. that we've been Actually, seeing. Before we do, chat. Before we do, I just wanted to say for anyone listening, um, if you're not hearing Jordan too much, Intel, uh, Aaron, see that is he's uh, he's gone to take his dogs for a walk. So uh, it's just three of us for the moment. So. Uh, yeah, just to clarify. Yeah, well, he'll he'll be back to yell at us about you know my being wrong about South America in in a bit. Um, but the the new action that we've been seeing over the past few weeks, um, that's possibly related to the new Biden administration. But going back to the point we talked about earlier, is trying to weed through, you know, what is new, what isn't new, you know, what is an evolution of what's on the ground, and what is just from the new administration. So. Um, you know, link down below are going to be a few tweets um, that I sent out over the past couple of weeks about 
new activity. Um, we've seen a lot of new recon activity. Um, there's an RC-135 that's been off the coast of Cuba fairly frequently now, um, mm-hmm. doing signals intelligence work and definitely snooping on Cuba. Um, what it's spying, we don't know yet. Um, I've been trying to sort through and see if I can find any new administ or any new information um, about uh, any new activity the Cuban military may be doing, or potentially the Chinese. Um, someone pointed me in that direction that we um, it may be related to Chinese activity in Cuba. Um, and then we're seeing more special operations um, activity, both in South and Central America. A lot of C-146s traveling around Colombia. Um, they're primarily for um, special operations transport. Um, they look like civilian airliners, but the point is to transport around special operations personnel and equipment. So it's going to be interesting to see what they're doing. Um, they've been traveling, interestingly, to some cities on the border with um, Venezuela. So, you know, have your <laughs> everyone can have their conspiracy theories about what's happening. Um but one of the things that we can identify is that there has been a significant amount of new activity. Yeah. And it's interesting because particularly with uh, this Venezuela side of things, we've not really seen a huge amount of U.S. air activity since pretty much that entire Venezuela situation really began, um, which was, what, probably 2019 now? It's been, it feels like it's been ages. Well, it's, um, it's, been, it's been on and off. Um, sort of back and forth for the past i would say since probably 2017 is when it ramped up a bit more of course the juan guaido situation drove um some additional activity and we we definitely saw um that drive some unrest both in venezuela and of course the u.s backed him which um you know, I would say it destabilized the situation, but that's what the U.S. was going for at the time. Um, so... Yeah, and so we've, we, we saw later on, um, obviously, the U.S. intercepting a number of tankers coming from Iran to Venezuela to provide uh, Maduro and his regime with, you know, fuel and money. Um, and then we've obviously had also the Russian uh, air activity flying across the Atlantic into Venezuela. Um, and supposedly shipping out Venezuela's gold reserves um, last year. And Iran as well um, has been flying a large number of cargo aircraft and also um, airlines have now been making more trips between Iran and um, Venezuela. Um, and there, there, there were reports, at least, that Iran was exchanging military material for... Um, Venezuelan gold just because Iran needs that capital and Venezuela needs the weapons. And Iran, at least right now, has access to Chinese and Russian equipment that Venezuela does not. So we're possibly seeing um, Venezuela get their hands on some more advanced systems due to Iranian trading. Um, And of course, I mean, we... We're obviously postulating right now. We don't know what's coming in and out. We just are seeing the flight activity, um, which gives us an idea of how much of something is going there. Um, all we can see right now is there's a lot. There, There is yeah. a heck of a lot. 
and and a brilliant brilliant source of information from the uh, the OSIN community um, for Venezuela is is uh, conflicts, um, and he's he's been focusing on Venezuela quite significantly for for well over a year now um, with a lot of this uh, flight activity he's been keeping tabs on, and he's been managing to get photos from the ground at some of the bases where these aircraft have been landing. And we did obviously see at one point that were Russian uh, contractors, if you like, um, sort of paid militiamen. Yeah, we're, we're using some very large air quotes here when we say contractors. Yeah, yeah, obviously the, the, the way that Russia deals with things is very different to how everyone else does it. But these are effectively Russian citizens armed with Russian weapons going in and having absolutely nothing to do if you if, if you believe that with the russian government and its intentions um and there were there was photos of them arriving at various points uh, early on in 2020 um various bits of equipment on both russian and iranian uh, chartered flights obviously the russian government is you know supporting um venezuela as a way to either distract the U.S. or, you know, give the U.S. some issues sort of in its backyard in, in, in a similar way to how we're um, acting in Syria. Russia is trying to cause us issues um, sort of, you know, in what we consider our home turf. Obviously, there are a lot of debates on um, U.S. influence in South and Central America, um, but the Russians are definitely um, assisting the Venezuelan government right now in a lot of different ways. Yeah. And it's interesting that um, initially, at least, the, the reaction from a lot of the other South American countries, um, Brazil and Chile and, and, and some of the others, um, was quite strongly, you know, please America, don't get involved here. But at the same time, also sort of looking across their own borders towards Venezuela with a great deal of concern. And that, that seems to have subsided for the most part. And, and I don't know if that's down to things not being quite as volatile perhaps now early 2021 as it were 12 months ago or if that's just the fact that they've kind of accepted the situation is what it is or maybe there's well Russian... a lot of a lot of south american countries have been dealing with covid for the past 12 months which has given them a lot of distractions at least um both military wise um of course the military has been um, operating internally in all these countries, trying to assist with um, recovery and um, fighting the virus, which has definitely diverted a lot of military attention. Um, politically, of course, the leadership is paying a lot of intention, attention to COVID internally, um, and the caseloads have just made it... Um, fighting a war right now would not exactly be advantageous. Um, for any of these countries, so they've definitely toned down the rhetoric in the last 12 months. Um, even even we're seeing in Brazil, um, yeah. we're, we're seeing the rhetoric surprisingly quiet um, for what the situation is. Yeah, and there was a period, uh, I know a couple of years ago, you will remember, where there was a strong belief that President, at the time, Trump would take direct military action against Venezuela mm. and suddenly you know that that whole thing just sort of dropped off a cliff and the relationship between Venezuela and the United States just it it well it died but it was never sort of heard of again and and the Venezuela issue just 
is still, still a silent issue in which you know the geopolitical landscape is shifted away from it but at the end of the day as you as you say it's still ongoing and, yeah you know there is indication that the situation is hotting up again maybe yeah, and, and the fact that we, we made it through John Bolton's tenure as National Security Advisor without bombing a foreign country was fairly impressive, I, I must say. Um, and, um, you know, it, it all comes down to the issue of what is politically um, acceptable right now, at least inside the U.S. And I don't think a proactive war or an offensive war is really politically advantageous to any party right now um where no one's really going to fight for something like that and unless a country provokes in some meaningful way most action will continue to stay clandestine and and, and on on that topic it is interesting obviously we've had um as as i'll cover later in the news brief uh, we've had the attack on urban airport and targeting u.s uh, forces there uh, at the start this week um, and it's interesting because, obviously, with the previous administration, there was a very, very clear red line there, where if any member of, uh, of the U.S. forces was injured or, or killed, there was going to be military response. And yet, with the new administration, we've, we've, there's definitely been a shift there, because we've obviously had uh, the injuries that take place and the death of a, a, a contractor there uh, this week. And there's been very little from the new administration in terms of action. There's been plenty of words has been, you know, that they issued a formal statement sort of within 12 hours of the uh, of the event taking place. But there's been very little else said about it since then, certainly not from any of the you know senior defense officials or the president or anything like that. Yeah, a lot of statements, not a lot of action. And, and that sort of has been the last, I don't know, last year and a half in a nutshell. A lot of statements, very little action, um, apart from the killing of Qasem Soleimani, which, you know, we're now going on over a year um, later. Yeah, we're seeing, A, again, going back to the Mossadegh, it's clandestine, um, apart from, you, you see the difference that 12, that, you know, a year is done, where we've gone from, you know, open actions against Soleimani to more... Um, you know, clandestine actions against, you know, Mossadegh and um, sort of the, again, the appetite for a prolonged conflict has absolutely dropped off in every single country. Um, Mostly because, A, countries do not want to fight with COVID as an issue um, because it just reduces the ability of a country to wage war, um, both domestically causing issues and, of course, among the ranks of service members. the U.S. has started to vaccinate um, frontline deployed personnel, um, which is definitely going to give the U.S. an edge. Um, and other countries will see, you know, who decides to start um, vaccinating service personnel first. Yeah, and that's that's important. I mean, I'm not sure yet that we have in the U.K. such a such a scheme as I'm aware. I, I believe that uh, it goes by age and vulnerability vaccination schemes i'm not sure that frontline armed forces personnel are currently receiving it as part of a group um and that's somewhere which the united states is obviously prioritized yeah uh, alongside a few other countries which which is interesting really because it's it's different priorities different governments and it, it becomes evident yeah um that that sort of 
It also has to do um, with the U.S. our strategy of vaccination, which is sort of um, uh, everything from the very local level up to state level, and then federal, of course, are, is responsible for the military and vaccinating personnel. Um, so you're sort of seeing these different spheres of responsibility um, and who has access to vaccines and who's providing vaccines. And, and you know, I think actually I did, I did forget Israel. Um, is the country I was trying to think of that has most likely, though they have not made it as public as some people would like, um, they definitely have vaccinated a large portion of their armed forces. Um, so they, they definitely have a leg up um, on... It's around hot, um... in, in fairness, with Israel, they have been very much ahead of the game. Yeah, I was just about to say there's a lag on my... Um... Overall. Um... Because obviously, with them, they've you know they they were one of the very first countries to start developing a vaccine. They were one of the very first countries to do some testing for it and start rolling out uh, their you know vaccine system. And if, if if I recall correctly, I read somewhere this week that they have you know they've done well over half of their own population already, and they're now looking at you know sending their vaccines overseas to help other countries catch up. If that makes sense. Yeah, and um. You know, that again, it's it's part of the, the application of, you know, soft power is who do they give their vaccines to? Who do they who do they make friends with? Of course, um one of the issues right now, um, in US Canadian relationships is um we may have promised Canada access to vaccines and um we're we're a bit slow on delivering right now. Um so that's that's caused some issues in the Canadian public and has definitely um impacted their view at least on uh, both on the trump and biden administration to be honest um has definitely been hit in the canadian public's eye um because of this vaccine access issue yeah and i think this that it also links as, as john and i very well know to the let's say deteriorating relationship between the eu and uk when it comes to vaccines i mean there's been this this whole thing for a few weeks now about a supply of vaccines about debates over orders and misinformation via well, senior leaders european leaders uh, over just over vaccines and it it's interesting that something of such unity has managed to actually be so divisive in terms of its impact mm. and and just it's worth remembering as well that that particularly with south america at the minute there has been very little talk in most of those countries, I think Brazil possibly being the exception, about vaccines. Um, because, uh, as, you, as you said, I was uh, technical, um, there's been a lot of uh, sort of cases there, and their, their case levels have been a lot higher, perhaps, than in, in parts of Europe. Um, and they, they really are obviously struggling to catch up with developing vaccines or, or even just getting hold of vaccines, while countries like the US you know, the EU and stuff are, are struggling to produce enough for themselves as it is. Yeah, and that's a place where China is going to get a very, very, very big lead, um, especially with uh, Sinopharm's capabilities in producing vaccines and their speed in just chucking out a traditional vaccine. Um, and we've already seen China has started um, delivering vaccines to African nations. Um, yeah. Links will be, of course, down below um, for some tweets on that. Um, but that's definitely something that's going to improve, that's going to further improve their standing. And as we see, 
China increase their soft power applications, um, you know, around Africa and around the Indian Ocean region. And the vaccines can help countries do that, as we've, as we've seen, as we've been discussing. It's, it's not just become a tool for herd immuni uh, immunization, but it's um, all for soft power. Yeah, and then yeah, as, countries, it's yeah, it's an excellent tool, really. Yeah, and as we see, you know, China has taken a different strategy than the U.S. and the U.K., which has been primarily, you know, in the U.S. and the U.K., vaccinating their own population first, and then once we sort of get done with getting through our own vaccine stockpile, you know, start sending it out to other places. Um, China, China's position has been more using vaccines first as an application of soft power, and you know in order to give those vaccines to other countries to, you know, increase their standing. Future Technical here with some slightly bad news to interject with. Um, this was just brought to my attention. It seems like the new COVID strains from uh, Brazil and South Africa both seem to significantly decrease the effectiveness of um, the Moderna vaccine and the Pfizer vaccine. So... We'll see where that goes, but back to your admittedly slightly cheerier news about vaccines. Sort of the, the strength of the Chinese state has allowed that. John, do we want to uh, move on to the news of the week that we haven't covered? Yeah, um, so uh, in the news this week, um, a US Air Force T-38C Talon uh, jet trainer tragically crashed in Alabama on Friday uh, during a routine training flight. Um, the two pilots who were on board at the time have uh, tragically been declared uh, dead. They were part of the 14th Flight Training Wing based at Columbus Air Force Base in Mississippi. Uh, one of the pilots was a US Air Force instructor, and uh, it has emerged today that the other pilot was actually a Japanese Air Self Defense Force officer uh, who was in the US for training. Um, as of the time of this recording, their names have not yet been released um, because obviously next of kin notifications uh, take priority. But uh, I'm, I'm sure we will be tweeting uh, photos and names about that in due course. Um, we've obviously also, earlier this week, we had, um, as part of the, the new U.S. administration, um, the U.S. ambassador to the United Nations uh, notified the U.N. Security Council that uh, it is withdrawing uh, letters previously sent to the U.N. Security Council about Iran's breaches of the JCPOA uh, nuclear agreement. Um, for those of you not aware about that, um, the U.S. has for some time um, been calling on the U.N. Security Council to impose further measures against Iran for its breaches, particularly with regards to the production of nuclear uh, weapons material. Um, and under the uh, that, that was a very key focus uh, under the Trump administration. Um, but this week, uh, in a very sudden U-turn, uh, the Biden administration has turned around and said, actually, we're, we're withdrawing those letters to the UN Security Council. Um, and it seems to be either a case of uh, appeasement towards Iran or to try and make a genuine effort towards a potential uh, return to some sort of uh, nuclear weapons restriction deal. Um, but obviously only time will tell as to whether Iran decides to do something about that or whether they just carry on uh, the way they are at the minute. Um, also in the news this week, China has admitted um, for the first time that four of its soldiers were killed uh, in the border clashes with India last June. Um, for months, the two nations were engaged in clashes along uh, 
with mountainous terrain, uh, with India admitting at the time to dozens of its own soldiers being killed and wounded in these fights. Um, at the time, China never admitted that they'd had any casualties of their own, um, probably for political reasons and, and, and for morale purposes. Um, but this week, the People's Liberation Army uh, issued a statement confirming that four of its soldiers had in fact been killed um, and that they've all been uh, posthumously awarded their contributions to the defence of China. Um, in the UK, uh, a former RAF Avro Lancaster bomber, uh, airframe NX611, known as Just Jane, uh, has taken another major step in her overhaul and reassembly. Um, at the moment, there are two Lancasters worldwide that are still flying, one with the, uh, the UK's Battle Britain Memorial Flight and the other with the Canadian Heritage Flight. Um, under the current plan, Just Jane will become the third uh, Lancaster to return to the air, um, with the overall and repairs uh, taking uh, an estimated 10 years in total. Um, at the moment, we're three years into the process. Um, it's, it's a very, very lengthy process because every single component of the aircraft has to be scrutinised to make sure that it is absolutely foolproof, that it's not going to fall apart under strain. Um, so the, the, the project is expected to take another seven years to complete, um, which is a, an awfully long time, but um, at a cost of just £4 million overall to get this incredibly historic aircraft back in the air um, for air shows and, and, and indeed for... Uh, it's worth it. It's all worth it, I say. Worth it, yeah. Insert, um, insert a joke about Morris cars here, but yeah, go ahead. <laughs> a, uh, a Pakistani... <laughs> Naval exercise uh, called Aman 21 concluded this week after six days of maneuvers in the uh, Indian Ocean. Um, ships from Pakistan, Russia, the US, China, Japan, and the UK took part. Um, in, in light of our discussions earlier about the UK carrier strike group, that's uh, quite an interesting combination of nations being involved in this exercise. Um, and I'm sure we'll, we'll get press releases uh, about the exercise in due course, but um, that was quite an interesting uh, naval exercise that very little uh, announcement about it, uh, but some interesting photos from uh, the Pakistani government. Um, in the Middle East this week, uh, HMS Montrose from the Royal Navy, uh, with a detachment of Royal Marines on board, uh, seized another £11 million worth of drugs um, from a series of uh, DAOs uh, that they intercepted in that uh, area. Um, it brings the total amount of drugs seized by Royal Navy warships to more than three hundred million pounds since October twenty twenty. Uh, that's not just in the Middle East, of course. That's also including uh, counter narcotics operations in the Caribbean and and further afield. Um, and a sad bit of news also in the UK this week, uh, the RAF Charitable Trust confirmed that the Royal International Air Tattoo or REAP Air Show 2021 uh, has been cancelled uh, due to uh, ongoing concerns uh, with the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, REAP was due to celebrate its 50th anniversary this summer with a uh, what was due to be the biggest and best air show ever. Um, but obviously that is now no longer going to be the case. So the RF Charitable Trust is looking once again uh, to run a virtual at air tattoo over that same weekend, um, which for those of you who, who didn't catch it last year, um, it was actually very, very impressive what they managed to put together considering the short notice. 
and and um, very entertaining as well. Um, definitely yeah. recommend um watching it when they put on uh, the next one. And brilliantly, you can watch it for free as well. So if you want to head over to their website uh, or just Google React Twenty Twenty One for that. Um, on Monday night, we obviously had, as we alluded to earlier, there was a an attack on Erbil Airport in Iraq, um, which left one civilian contractor dead, one U.S. service member injured, and eight other contractors injured. Um, there were also f at least five civilians uh, who were injured by the uh, the attack. Some 14 rockets uh, are believed to have been fired by a pro-Iran militia group um, late on Monday evening. Um, the U.S., as we said, issued a statement condemning the attack, uh, but has done very, very little else um, about the situation since then, um, in a stark change to the kind of response that we saw to previous attacks of this kind uh, from the previous administration. Uh, Norway will deploy uh, F-35s to Iceland for the first time as part of the NATO air policing mission to that country. Um, 130 personnel will deploy alongside a detachment of jets uh, to Keflavik Air Base. Um, Norway has previously deployed F-16s to Iceland in 2009, 2011, 2014 and 2016. Um, but this year the deployment will be the F-35 only. Um, as uh, Tom alluded to earlier as well, the US administration has chosen to remove the terrorist designation of the uh, Yemen-based Houthi militia group, uh, despite uh, ongoing uh, unmanned aircraft and rocket attacks by them against uh, US ally Saudi Arabia. Um, the announcement was more or less immediately followed by yet another attempt uh, by the Houthis to attack uh, two uh, uh, Saudi cities, um, with the uh, Iranian-made Samad drones being shot down uh, just before they arrived at Jeddah. Um, obviously, also, not quite this week, but in a week or two ago now, um, the US also began withdrawing its intentions to sell certain uh, items of military equipment to Saudi and to the UAE. Again, uh, a change uh, based from this uh, new U.S. administration, um, and certainly something that we'll be keen to watch in light of this decision about the Houthis. Um, and lastly, uh, as uh, Technical mentioned earlier, um, today, uh, literally this evening, photos have emerged from the Syria-Iraq border uh, showing the U.S. Uh, Stinger missile systems on, on uh, M1097 Avenger vehicles being transferred into Syria. Um, and obviously, we don't know an awful lot about that at the moment, but uh, the indication is that that's to provide additional protection uh, to U.S. bases in northern Syria amidst the current uh, drawdown of U.S. troops deployed to Iraq um, following the Iraqi government's decision last year to withdraw its support for U.S. presence in the country. And as with everything, links will be down below um, to all of our sources, including tweets from us and some additional information as well um including stuff like pictures of the rockets um and casings fired at um Erbil airport earlier this week and i think and, um uh, i think with that that pretty much covers it doesn't it yeah so thank you everyone for listening of course thank you tom coming at us from his nuclear bunker somewhere under slough um, and Defense Geek, uh, sitting on a Type 23 somewhere in the Indian Ocean. 
I think we can wrap that up for this episode. Thank you, everyone, for listening, and we will have an episode same time, same place next week.